Bible text today is Jeremiah 17:5 to 8 and Matthew 5:10 to 12. I'll read first Jeremiah 17:5 to 8. Jeremiah 17:5 to 8. I read in English Standard Version. Thus says the Lord, cursed is the man who trusts in man and makes flesh his strength, whose heart turns away from the Lord. He is like a shrub in the desert, shall not see any good come. He shall dwell in the parched places of the wilderness in an uninhabited salt land. Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord, whose trust is the Lord, is like a tree planted by water that sends out its roots by the stream and does not fear when heat comes for its leaves remain green and is not anxious in the ear of drought for it does not cease to bear fruit. And Matthew 5, 10 to 12. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you, persecute you, and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. The word of the Lord. Join with me in prayer. Gracious God, May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable to you and bring praise and encouragement and strength as we share together in your word. Amen. When I lived in California just prior to coming to Yellow Creek, I had the privilege of uh, working for a doctor who had a boat in Long Beach, our, uh, uh, marina and we would he would take us out sailing to Catalina Island it's about I want to say 20 to 23 miles um, actually about I think it's 21 miles to the island from Long Beach and so it's a it's a reasonable sail you can go out and then come back the same day once or twice we actually went out and docked or anchored there and then just slept on the boat for the night. There was a, a woman by the name of Florence Chadwick who was the first woman to ever swim the difficult and cold waters of that 21-mile stretch. She failed on her first attempt. Uh, it was discouraging. After 15 hours and 55 minutes of numbing cold, she asked to be taken out of the water. The he a heavy fog had blanketed the area and obscured her vision of the land. And then she found out after she quit that land was only one mile away. She could have seen it without the fog. She said, if I could have seen that shore, I know that I could have made it. She was defeated because she lost sight of her goal. The fog did not hinder her physically but psychologically, it sapped her of her strength and the courage to go on by robbing her of the vision of her goal. Compare that to 
what Jesus taught and scripture tells us about persecution. It obscures us from being able to see our goal. Jesus knew that the fog of persecution would settle down and around his disciples and they would that would lead to doubt and confusion and discouragement. He knew that these things would blind the believers and especially for those serving as his disciples and it would, would rob them of their vision of their goal and could easily defeat them. Could cause them to lose their happiness of all the other beatitudes. Therefore, in this last beatitude, Jesus provides his disciples with an encouraging weapon to be able to penetrate the fog of persecution. Often see sports events where somebody does something great and then they just go wild. In fact, uh, in some sports they used to, they actually would penalize someone for celebrating too much. And I know that the one statement that people would make is, is, well, why don't you act like you've been there before? And that concept was saying, look, did you not expect to get a touchdown? Did you not expect to, to be successful? Did you not expect to sink that putt? Did you not expect to make that basket? I mean, you know, of course you expected to, or you wouldn't be playing the sport if you didn't think you were able to make that and be successful in it. And the whole idea was this sort of, this criticism of celebrating the happiness, you know, and so, yeah, be professional and act like it's just commonplace. I think that does, is a, a helpful analogy to think about the fact that when we're living this life, how do we not, how do we act like, oh, well, that never saw that coming. Well, that, that shouldn't be part of life. If I'm going to live my faith, I expect God to cater to me and to reward me for my faithfulness and, and I shouldn't have that persecution. And then I'm surprised when persecution comes. And that's part of the setup that calls us to quiet down, to not be so bold, to, to seriously put some curbs on our ability to be joyful and that somehow if you are expressing too much joy, even in the face of persecution, that's just odd. That's just weird. That's just something that, you know, you shouldn't be doing. But the question is, how do we expect persecution to come? Because we follow Jesus Christ, who knew what was coming, not only for himself, but for the disciples. And he lived with the expectation that life is going to be hard, but life in Christ is even better, that there's a greater joy, and that somehow we're able to stay focused. Uh, in, the, um, in the movie Typhoon, Joseph Conrad was the captain and he, he shouted to Jakes, his first mate, as the waves were pounding the ship, he said, don't you be put out by anything. Keep her facing it, facing it. Always keep it 
Keep, always keep facing it. It's the way to get through. Face it. It's enough for any person to keep a cool head and face it. He was talking about the ship. You keep the ship faced toward whatever is going on, even if it's a challenging difficulty, because that was the way that you kept stable in the middle of the storm continuing to pound. This is what Jesus was saying to his disciples. The storm of persecution is coming. If you try and turn back to escape it, you'll lose all. The victory and the happiness depends on their keeping a cool head and facing whatever comes. And it doesn't mean it's easy. Doesn't mean that it shouldn't be difficult. Doesn't mean that we don't cry out and ask for God to, to calm the storm. It doesn't mean that we, that we somehow just say, oh, well, whatever happens, and just sit down. And it also doesn't mean that we go and hide in a lower deck. It means we, we face it. But we act as if we know that this life has trouble, as Scripture says. But Jesus said, take heart, for I have overcome the world. Do we trust in that overcoming? I think the more that we, we learn about that, the more we not only accept it and know it's just part of life, but also we're able to keep steering directly into the purpose for which we've been called. You know, I know that you've heard this. I've heard it more times than I ever want to admit it's and and I don't really enjoy hearing it. it it's such a popular term but you've heard the term cancel culture and I think this is an example and I, I'm curious as to your thoughts you can share this in your classes I, I'm don't you think that every generation thinks that that somehow we came up with something new that we came up with a new concept. Oh, come on, you're, that's, that's old, you don't understand it. I, I know my generation did that to our parents. Oh, if you, you, there's a new, a new awakening of knowledge. We are more woke than your generation was. And I think of that because of this cancer culture, cancel culture. Uh, it refers to the popular practice of withdrawing support from people or from companies after they've done or said something that is considered objectionable or offensive. Cancel culture is generally discussed as being performed on social media in the form of group shaming of people. Where does cancel culture come from? Well, when something is canceled, it is nulled, ended, voided, done, over, no longer wanted, like a TV show or a subscription. This sense of cancel is the basic idea behind the slang meaning of canceling a person. When a person is canceled, they are no longer supported publicly. Now, folks, this is nothing new. Absolutely nothing new. Satan has been trying to cancel Christ followers Satan has been trying to cancel the church. Satan has been trying to cancel the Christian faith for a long, long time. 
In fact, the primary goal of the evil one is to use every tool possible to disrupt the mission of the church and to derail Christians from believing in God and trusting in God. And so we should not act surprised at the fact that we are going to face constant ridicule, constant desire to keep shaping faith in a way that is more convenient for us. And if we're not expecting it, we will get caught up in it. In John 15, it says in verse 19, if you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, Jesus is saying, they will persecute you also. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But all these things they do, they will do to you on account of my name because they do not know him who sent me. We have always been persecuted by cancel culture. And for many Christians, it's been way too effective in disrupting our lives, leaving us unhappy, unfulfilled, confused, doubting, untrusting, and distant from God, and questioning our faith. Kim Hubbard said, it's pretty hard to tell what does bring happiness anymore. Poverty and wealth have both failed. Most of what Jesus taught about happiness does not deal with the absence or presence of possessions at all, but with the person, with what a person is in themselves. Happiness on the highest level can be found in, uh, in what comes to us, cannot, uh, is not to be found in what comes to us, but what we can come to be. That's what the Beatitudes were all about. Jesus knew the importance of joy and happiness. He, he, was, he was not telling the disciples, you will never be happy, you'll never be joyful, don't ever laugh, don't crack jokes, because that's off limits. Find the humorous in other things, don't do that. You know, if, if that were the call of Christ, uh, some of us would, would be pretty pretty limited in our ability to live. Uh, that isn't what Jesus was saying. And this is why he begins his greatest sermon with a list of ways to be perfectly happy on earth for those who would follow him and be citizens of the kingdom of heaven. Let me ask you a question. Do you actually think that Jesus is expecting that his disciples would be the happiest people on earth? I wonder what your thoughts are on that. Did he look at us and say, and did, was he saying to the disciples, you of all people will have the greatest joy of all because of what I've taught you and what you know? Tertullian, an early Christian writer said, the Christian saint is hilarious. Hilarious. Interesting statement that many centuries ago. 
Jesus said to his own, my joy be with you. And the scripture tells us that the fruit of the spirit is joy. We know this is not only true spiritually, this is even true physically. Philip Gibbs in The Hidden City writes, unhappiness affects the internal secretions. It has an odd effect on the heart sometimes. It lowers physical resistance. It debilitates the nervous system and weakens willpower. Louis Evans went so far as to say, more people are sick because they are unhappy than they are unhappy because they are sick. Happiness is and joy is a medicine for the body, mind, and spirit of humankind. And Jesus, the great physician, prescribes this medicine in its greatest potency. But here's the problem. We will often take the blessing, but we don't want to take the persecutions. Or another word for the persecutions can be the cross. Now, here we have the cross. Do we understand that we are countercultural because we are called to be willing to take the cross and to carry it? When Paul warns that in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 15, he says this, Be very careful then how you live, not as the unwise, but as wise. Do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Holy Spirit. Do we understand that that filling of the Holy Spirit has to do with a willingness for us to follow in the way of Christ, to follow in the way of the cross? Let's remember this vital and central, critical fact. According to the Christian worldview, I'm not God and you're not God. Either we believe the word of God or we toss it out and make up whatever we want. The sin instinct of humankind is to remake God in our own image. We want Jesus to be like us. We want Jesus to get on board with our viewpoints and our plans. But that isn't the Jesus of history and the Jesus of, of the Bible. And that isn't the Jesus who is alive and well now in heaven, seated on the right hand of God. We are a delusional people sometimes as humans. It's amazing some of the things that we'll read into scriptures or cut out of scriptures to suit our own tastes. Our instinct as humans is not to trust the Bible. Our instinct is to trust our own opinions. And that is sort of the default that we go to without realizing it. And so one of the purposes of persecutions is not because it just naturally comes, but we will be persecuted because of the cross. People will be trying to cancel our culture all our lives. We just prayed for our eighth grade graduates, and last week, all of our different age groups graduates. We prayed for them, and, and you parents have prayed for your kids all through these years so that they will not allow 
culture, popularity, wealth, conformity, anything else to somehow cancel their faith in God. We shield that with our prayers. We, we seek the power of God to overcome those things that influence us away from Christ. And make no mistake about it, there is a greater power in the cross than there is in any of those things that will cause us to doubt and to pull away. We as Christians, we know our discernment isn't always perfect and we will make mistakes. Maybe though we're the ones who are holding to the wrong opinion or limited opinion or opinions based upon false or incomplete evidence. Let's take the radical step of believing the things that we know from scripture. The gospel itself is an offense. Let's not be surprised by the fact that we will be persecuted for it. And growingly so. But every generation has. And somehow Christ has not been defeated. And the cross has not been removed. And the power of the word of God has not been overcome. Can we look at that history and say, this is something worth holding on to. The joy of the Christians at Pentecost led people to make accusations. Oh, you're happy, you're joyful, you're drunk. Jesus was even accused of being a little off, perhaps even drunk because of who he was hanging out with. Everyone is looking for the joy of Christ in human flesh. And everyone needs to understand, and we need to understand and embrace as a people of God, an unashamed and undeterred ability to face the storm and steer into it, holding fast to the things that we know. And to encourage each other in that process. That's the call to face the persecution. But let's also remember that there is a blessing. And if you read only this scripture that was read this morning, you will say that the, the only thing that the blessing is, is about heaven. Well, you just go through all of the tough stuff and then you will get to go to heaven. And in fact, in many earlier generations, that sort of, quote, evangelical gospel, which today is they're attempting to cancel even the, the word evangelism, sharing our faith, that's all trying to be canceled. But every, you know, for generations, people have tried to basically eliminate that and take that away from our calling. And we are called to a blessing, though, in Scripture, and I'll share some different Scriptures, that is much broader than just the blessing of being able to go to heaven. In other words, how can we find peace right now in the storms? How, how can we find confidence in the middle of everything being shaken around us? We do it by keeping the ship focused on Jesus. I just want to share very quickly 
a couple of things that are the, in addition to the idea of eternal life. There is unexplainable joy within. First Peter 1, 8 and 9 says, Though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him, are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. For you're receiving the end result of your faith, the salvation of your souls. The ability to laugh and find joy in the middle of difficult things is not because that's natural to us. It's because it is supernatural to us. It is a divine instilling of peace in the middle of the storm and knowing that we are in God's hands. In John 16, 22, it says, So with you, now is your time of grief, but I will see you again and you will rejoice and no one will take away your joy. Do we believe that and claim that? An inexplainable joy within. Secondly, and the absolute presence, love, and guidance of God. Just reread Psalm 23 a number of times and continue to know that God's presence, his power, his love is with us in every thing in life, even the valley of the shadow of death. There's an absolute promise all through scripture about God being with us and his love and his guidance. Third, an identity shaped by the grace of Jesus. Centuries ago, Cicero said, a happy life consists in tranquility of mind. You can do all kinds of great works, but if you're filled with fear and anxiety in all your labor, uh, it will not make you joyful or happy. Jesus recognized the basic need for peace of mind and heart, and this was one of his greatest gifts he offered to us. Blessed are the pure in heart. And he puts emphasis on the inner nature of joy and happiness. Heinrich Ibsen wrote, happiness is above all things the calm, glad certainty of innocence. In other words, an identity that's shaped by the grace of Christ is an identity that receives forgiveness and can start over with the joy of that forgiveness every single day. Doesn't mean that we're out of the storm. It means that we can have peace in the middle of it. It means that we, like Jesus, can lay down and sleep in a boat while a storm is raging because he knows we got this. Dad, we got this. We're good. I'm sleeping, taking a nap. Maybe encourages those of us who still like to take naps. Fourth, the power of the Holy Spirit to live in faith. In Galatians 5.16, it says, I say then, walk in the Spirit and you will not fulfill the lust for the flesh. For the flesh lusts against the Spirit and the Spirit against the flesh. And these are contrary to one another so that you do not do the things that you wish. We are called to live in holiness. And Ephesians 1.13, In him who also you also trusted, after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of salvation, in whom you also, have, having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is the guarantee of inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of his glory. This is God telling us through his word 
that the power of the Holy Spirit gives us something that doesn't make sense in this world. It just doesn't. We're an odd, odd people and we love it. We love it. We love being able to, I've told you this too many times, so I'll just simply say, we love, we love to be pulled up into the dragon's mouth and just before he crunches us, we are dancing. It is unexplainable because we know the one who gives us victory over all things. The power of the Holy Spirit to live in faith is something that doesn't come from us, doesn't come from how many devotions or how many minutes we pray. It comes from our heart being devoted to Christ. And then, of course, as we said, there is the assurance of a great reward in heaven. That's what was stated in this passage in verse 12, that the passage that was read this morning. Rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven. And so we are called to be as Lowell wrote. He said this, by the light of the burning heretics, Christ's bleeding feet I track, toiling up new Calvaries ever with the cross that turns not back. Let me read that again. By the light of burning heretics, they were burned at the stake with crowds watching. By the light of burning heretics, Christ's bleeding feet I track toiling up new Calvaries ever. Every day, constant trials and struggles are the Calvaries that we toil up with the cross that turns not back. The joy of the Lord is pressing on whatever the cost with your eyes upon the one who bore the cross for you. Jesus says, happy are those who take following me seriously enough to bear the burden of the cross. So take up the cross and follow me, Jesus says, and his demand is still the same today. The promise is still the same, that those who suffer with Christ will also reign with him forever. In Matthew 5.10, blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness. We count it all joy, as Paul said. And so in the verses after this Matthew passage that was read in 13 to 15 or 16, you are the salt of the earth. If the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. You are the light of the world. The town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand, and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, Jesus says to us today, in the middle of confusion and persecution and illness and toil and every other ache and every other thing that's happening, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify the Father in heaven. Jesus saves us to save others from his purpose. There was a wealthy family in England that went for a holiday in the country 
and they were, uh, went for a swim in a pool. One of the boys stayed behind when the others left, and he got into serious trouble and began to drown. Fortunately, the son of the gardener heard the cries for help and came to the rescue. He jumped in and pulled the boy to safety. The parents were so grateful, they asked the gardener, who earns meager dollars, what could they do for this youth young hero? He explained that his son wanted to go to college to become a doctor. The wealthy family gladly paid the cost of, for the boy who went on to become the famous Dr. Fleming who developed penicillin. When Winston Churchill was stricken with pneumonia, Dr. Fleming was called in to treat him and by means of penicillin was able to save his life again. What do I mean by again? Churchill was the boy that Fleming had pulled out of the water years earlier. He saved him as a boy and he saved him again as a man. That is only possible by the power of God in his redeeming work that calls us to save others and to cause us to save others and calls those being saved to save others and calls us to continue to do the work of the Lord. In Acts 20, it says, 22, verse 22, and now compelled by the Spirit, Paul says, I'm going to Jerusalem, I knowing not what will happen to me there. I only know that in every city, the, the Holy Spirit warns me that prison and hardships are facing me. However, I consider my life worth nothing to me. My only aim is to finish the race and complete the task that the Lord Jesus has given me. The task of testifying to the good news of God's grace. May we, in this day and always, be willing to face the storm and accomplish the task for which we have been called. To accomplish the task of expressing and testifying to the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ and his grace in our lives. Maybe we be inspired to that as we go forth today. Well, a team will come and lead us in a song called Lead Me On. Make this a prayer and let's sing it joyously because it testifies to the power of God's strength and God's healing and God's ability to empower us to share the good news.